Welcome to Ethical Data. On this podcast, you're going to hear how leaders in policy, academia, and technology consider the role of artificial intelligence, along with its moral, social, and political implications. Here's your host, Elena Nadenova. On this week's episode of Ethical Data, we're joined by Jason Ponton. London-born, California-raised and educated in the United Kingdom at Harrow School and Keble College, Oxford, Jason was the editor of Red Herring, the Bible of the dot-com boom. From there, he moved to MIT Technology Review, wrote a column for the New York Times, and founded Solve, MIT's open innovation platform. In 2018, he left MIT to work directly with scientist entrepreneurs as a senior partner at Flagship Pioneering, a life sciences innovation firm that invents the technology of its portfolio companies. In 2021, he joined DCVC, which backs companies using deep tech to build a more abundant, resilient and equitable future. On the episode, we discuss Jason's journey from a journalist to VC, the lessons he's learned backing companies tackling some of the most complex problems in health and climate, and his views on the role of machine learning in unlocking change in healthcare. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. We have a very exciting conversation coming ahead with my guest, Jason Pontin, who I'm incredibly excited to speak to today. Hi, Jason. Hi, Elena. So good to have you on the call. And I really want to start this with your version of events of what brought you to today, because you've had one of the most exciting careers that I've ever seen. Um, and I think our readers would really like to get a bit of a flavor of what kind of evolved the journey. Well, exciting is too strong a word, Elena, but I probably have a eclectic and different background for a venture capitalist. I'm not a molecular biologist or a computer scientist. I am an Oxford-trained journalist. For many years, I wrote for publications like the Financial Times, uh, the New York Times, and I ran to relatively famous technology publications. One was called Red Herring, which was the Bible of the dot-com boom. And then for 15 years, I was the editor-in-chief and the publisher, that is the CEO of MIT Technology Review, which is the, the world's oldest technology publication. But while I was at MIT, I, I kind of became a a sort of academic administrator. MIT has a terrible habit of throwing operational responsibilities at anyone who shows the slightest operational competence. They, they don't give you any more money uh, and they tell you that the <laughs> service is, 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 you know, is ennobling in itself. But by the time I left uh, MIT, uh, all of MIT communications had uh, reported up to me even though I'm not really a communications person, I was one of MIT's two advisors to the then president, uh, Susan Hockfield. I ran a alumni organization called the MIT Enterprise Forum, which represented the interests of the uh, MIT entrepreneurial community. And I started a very strange but interesting thing which brought me to venture capital. It's called MIT Solve, and every year it proposes, it proposes five 
grand challenges, big problems where MIT doesn't have the foggiest idea what the solution might be. It, it does happen. And MIT invites to campus uh, and creates an online platform for hundreds of teams all around the world to go and propose their solutions. So if MIT is interested in, say, distance learning, the, the hypothesis was there was a young headmistress, perhaps in Soweto, who had the best idea for how to do it for Africa, had a better idea than MIT uh, had. And the winning team would get showered with whatever they needed. It could be money. It could be free access to MIT's intellectual property. It could even be uh, MIT's lobbying power. Probably the two most famous challenges we took on uh, in my time were first how to reform the approval of new nuclear reactors. This sounds stupid, but until recently, a new reactor design had not been approved in the United States in 60 years. 60 years, because wow. the, standard, the standard was zero, zero accidents whatsoever. A standard we hold to no <laughs> other energy, or really anything at all. Um, uh, out of that came an entirely new regulatory uh, process at the NRC, and a new head of uh, reactor approvals. And in fact, out of that came a DCVC company uh, called Oclo, which mm. is making a new fast reactor. The other thing we famously did at the height of the Syrian war, there were around 61 million refugees all around the world, half of whom were under 18. Uh, and Solv asked, what would it take to get them a MIT standard education? The answer was, it turned out that you would literally parachute into refugee camps, container ships filled with the MIT curricula, uh, and lots of computers, books, and, and pencils. But, but working on Solve gave me a, a hunger to do more than write about new technologies or have people write about new technologies. And I looked at the, the vanishing runway we had for solutions for a number of problems I cared about. Problems in healthcare, problems in energy, in inclusive innovation and industrial transformation. Uh, and I started to interview at venture capital firms. In fact, I, I was so busy at MIT, it took me two years to fully extract myself. But eventually I went <laughs> to a firm called Flagship Pioneering, which invented Moderna and a bunch of other companies uh, you know, and I was a senior partner at Flagship for three years. And while I was at Flagship, I started a company of my own using machine learning techniques to uh, rationally design covalent molecule therapeutics. Uh, DCVC invested in it. Uh, and during the process, I, I knew the founders. They asked me how much I had run the incubation on. I said, oh, two, $2 million. And they said, that was very capital efficient. Come and do that for us. <laughs> so I, uh, I joined DCVC in March of 21 and have been what's called a, a general partner at other firms, what we just call a partner on the investing team ever since. Amazing. That's a, such an interesting journey. And I, I can see multiple kind of perspectives forming along the way. 
Um, and what it points towards is your ecosystem perspective when it comes to innovation. How does that shape up your practice and view as an investor? It's a very interesting question. So I obviously, I don't come at investment by knowing more than the founders or the entrepreneurial scientists do about a whole variety of fields. And, and indeed, in the problems I want to solve, there are often two or 300 people uh, who have the most plausible leading solutions. But what I do have is excellent taste. I know the problems that I want to work on. I have, as you suggest, a ecosystem of people I've been working with sometimes or writing about for decades who I think might be able to contribute to solving the problem. I obviously bring a narrative skill once I've identified the team I want to work with uh, for describing what the solution will be. It turns out some of the worst people to describe breakthrough solutions are the scientists themselves. Uh, and then finally for me... <laughs> so true. So true. Finally for me, working at Flagship was my MBA. So um, venture capitalists don't usually talk about the technical business of structuring deals, partly because it's, um, it's boring. Uh, and partly because it's uh, kind of our tradecraft. But um, uh, I know how to raise money uh, and put together syndicates uh, for what often will be very capital-intensive projects. Um, th there are solutions for which venture capital is, is not the only way uh, to uh, drive towards a global solution. But if it involves billions of people, and if it's going to be very capital intensive, uh, and if competition uh, is salutary rather than distraction, venture capital can be useful. Uh, and in those cases, I know how to go and put together a group of like-minded investors who have a relatively long appetite for when they expect the company to be profitable. Mm. And, and you mentioned you have a list of big problems you're looking to tackle. What's kind of top of that list? Well, let me let me begin with with healthcare because that's what I did uh, at Flagship, and it ties directly into uh, the topic of the uh, of this podcast. So, Flagship, which created Moderna and a whole bunch of other companies, is a, is an absolute engine for new biological insights. So it discovers new mechanisms of action, often using machine learning all the time, and creates sometimes entirely new modalities like mRNA therapeutics to, uh, to uh, perturb those, those new biologies. But at a certain point at, uh, at Flagship, I remember sitting next to one of my peers, one of my partners, and asking, over the last 20 years, how many new drugs have we actually got into the clinic to really help patients? And, and the partner, I won't say his name, looked a little shamefaced, and he said, well, not including the microbiome therapeutics, two, three. And 
my my mother died of colorectal cancer, and my my brother-in-law, who was an artist whom I adored, uh, died of of brain cancer. And in both cases, uh, the biological target, in the case of my brother-in-law, a glioblastoma uh, mutation called IDH1, was very widely known. So we didn't lack for mechanisms of action, but we were in a kind of liminal stage of cancer genomics where we weren't applying some of these techniques in machine learning to screen new compounds so we could get the drug to exactly to lock onto the target and not create off-target effects. So for me, a problem that I really wanted to work on was reducing the failure rate uh, of new compounds uh, and improving the predictability of those compounds to have the, the effects that we wanted. I, I, I think the world of people who are finding entirely new mechanisms of action for drugs, and we're going to need them to go and treat really intractable diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. But in cancer, there are all these low-hanging fruits that I thought machine learning could be uh, extremely helpful. So one of the problems I wanted to work on was reducing the time to market of new therapeutics from 10 years to two or three and reducing the failure rate from, you know, it depends on how you count it, as much as 97% down to a, you know, a much more reasonable rate of failure. And why that was important was not just we'd get more drugs into the clinic, though that's important, but we could take more experimentations. People like me uh, will be willing to throw more money at entrepreneurs and we could do more stuff. At the moment, to go and get a new drug uh, successfully through phase three can cost as much as ah, as much as two or three billion dollars. And that just seemed to me to be crazy. But in addition to healthcare, I had a large number of problems I wanted to work on in, in climate tech. So we, um, not long before I left um, uh, MIT, I, I was speaking to Ernie Moniz, who became Obama's Secretary for Energy. And I, I my journal, my ex-journalist way, I was talking glibly about, you know, solving these problems before it was too late. And I remember Ernie Moniz, who was head of the MIT Energy Initiative at the time, said, oh, Jason, it's, it's already too late. Um, by which he meant we were already speeding past 1.5 degrees of warming. And the challenge was to keep it below two degrees. And the only way to do that wasn't to go and work on these very difficult long-term problems like creating clean fusion um, or creating new reactors, as I was talking about itself. So we'll need to do that as well. The immediate problem was to clean up really dirty industries, like the way we make synthetic fertilizers now, um, stopping the oil and natural gas industry from leaking so much methane, cleaning up um, chemical production so we weren't wholly dependent upon um, synthetic petrochemicals uh, for paints and a whole variety of, of other things. You know, if we did that, um, 
we might be very close or a lot closer to carbon neutrality by the middle of the century. And to wait for energy miracles seemed to me to be submitting to climate catastrophe, seemed to be submitting to the apocalypse. And then, and then finally, I'm not quite, quite, sure, quite sure to call this final, final silo, but there are problems in inclusive innovation, problems in, problems in industrial transformation for big, you know, inefficient industries like how we offer healthcare, not just to, you know, Americans who don't have access, but to China and India and Africa who aren't going to repeat the way we've offered healthcare in uh, in America that I wanted to work on as well. I figure that I'm good for, I'm 55 years old now, Elena. I figure I'm good for maybe another 20 years, or as we measure it in venture capital terms, two more funds. Uh, and I wanted to have a positive social impact uh, before I retired. This is fascinating. And you are definitely highlighting some of the biggest challenges we need to tackle as a species, as humanity on, on the planet at the moment. What's really curious in, in this is to get your perspective on how much of what is not happening today is due to the technology not being ready, the technology not being there versus our ecosystem, going back to the initial uh, part of the conversation, need, needing transformation to be able to absorb that technological innovation? Well, it's a, it's a wise question. Um, the answer is a little bit complicated. It depends on the horizon of the, the problems. So it is, it's probably true that to, to absolutely change the way we generate electricity, will require an entirely new ecosystem, including new regulations, uh, perhaps a new social compact. But there are, and we, we need to work on those as well, but there are, there are nearer horizon problems which are soluble with today's technologies using the, using the economic incentives we currently have current marketplaces. So let, let me just go and give, give one. It will surprise you to hear that around 18% of global emissions derive from uh, agriculture and specifically derive from the way we uh, produce uh, synthetic nitrogen uh, fertilizers. So at the moment, unbelievably, we make these fertilizers essentially by cracking hydrocarbons uh, and sucking nitrogen from the air using a 100-year-old process called the Haber-Bosch process. Um, in addition to being tremendously productive uh, of emissions, it's also poisonous to the soil. It ruins the only asset farmers have, which is their, uh, their, their soil, their farms. If you drive around the U.S. Midwest, you can see these large stagnant pools uh, of algae. Uh, all over the uh, countryside because the um, the uh, the algae or the algae are overproducing uh, because of these synthetic uh, nitrogen fertilizers. Using machine learning techniques, uh, you can genetically alter the pathways of nitrogen fixing 
bacteria so that when you plant a crop, you can uh, plant the microbes with the crop so that you only lay down the, uh, the synthetic, the um, microbial fertilizer once and produce a, a better fertilizer than the synthetic uh, nitrogen fertilizers produced by petrochemistry. But you can't sell it to farmers um, as an entirely new ecosystem. If you try and sell it to Trump-wearing, um, uh, Trump-cap-wearing farmers in the Midwest as a environmental and sustainability uh, solution, you're going to get nowhere. That's not why they're going to buy it. Instead, you sell it to them as being a better fertilizer. So we founded a company called Pivot Bio uh, that created these genetically altered uh, microbes. Uh, that fix nitrogen from the soil by themselves. And crucially, uh, these microbes from Pivot Bio increase the, the yield of the crops. They produce a more dependable yield so that they don't have to go and bet the farm literally every year uh, through insurance. And best of all, they only have to go and put down the fertilizer once. They don't have to lay it down after every rainstorm. We don't even say the, the company was founded out of the uh, biology department at the University of California, Berkeley. We 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 moved the headquarters of the company to Ames, Iowa, because the company has to sell through local reps to farmers, and and that's the way you solve these initial problems. You go and sell. It's like picking up dirty laundry, one piece of laundry at a time, and clean. That, that's how you fix fix climate change. And then simultaneously, this solution that's in the marketplace right now uh, doesn't mean that you're not also working on creating fusion or new reactor designs. So um, um, at some level, my job is to present society and, and policymakers with a wider range of choices. And at least in the short term, those wider range of choices have to have their own economic imperative. It can seem sometimes, Elena, like we're nowhere, like uh, we agree on nothing. But um, people tend to be motivated, as Adam Smith told us, by their economic interest. And so if I can go and create better alternatives for things they're already doing, I can maybe fix some short-term problems, and that will give me more runway to work on really hard problems, um, like Alzheimer's. Um, like fusion, um, like providing nearly free space lift to Africa. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, th I think healthcare suffers from the exact same challenges. Um, and specifically, when we think about data-driven solutions, AI, machine learning, we we kind of face this dichotomy of both it's overhyped and it under-delivers to that hype. And simultaneously, the system is not really ready for the advancements and capabilities that AI can unlock. Um, and I, I wonder at what point do these two very different narratives and directions merge and we, we get to a place where transformation is real and the short term starts to meet the long term, as you're saying. Do you have a speculation on that front, or do you have an example of another industry where you've seen that happen? I do. I mean, it's interesting to talk about hype and 
and reality. I think the machine learning AI community did itself a, a great disfavor um, by overhyping what they might be delivering and focusing on the science fictional. I mean, I mean, I would argue, I would argue that even calling these techniques artificial intelligence just at a marketing and narrative level uh, was a mistake. And now it's true that people like Jeff Hinton and Jan LeCun, uh, they came out of the AI departments of their various universities, often in Canada, interestingly, uh, and therefore they thought about convolutional neural nets and and deep learning. They thought about them in terms of the AI projects they were working on. But really, these were they were using fairly simple techniques um, in pattern recognition, uh, in natural language, um, um, in information processing. Uh, and it might have been better early on to have called the whole damn thing, you know, something, something simpler. And it would have been particularly better not to have talked about artificial general intelligence um, or projects which, you know, at least semi-experts like me, like self-driving cars, you were in fact were going to be very difficult. And instead, we should have focused on uh, providing early victories about things that we knew we could do. And God knows many of them were pretty exciting. I mean, even the really early stuff, like being able to tag yourself in Facebook or having your signature uh, recognized when you cashed a check were pretty damn cool. Uh, and then there were all these problems in life sciences and high throughput screening for drugs where we knew we could make progress. And that was the stuff to have, have promised. And then like Steve Jobs leaving the stage, we could have said, oh, and one more thing. You know, within 10, 15, 20 years, we think we can solve some of these these other bigger problems as well. That was the way to have raised money and created public confidence. But for a whole bunch of reasons, the pioneers in the space had come out of AI in the, uh, in the 70s and in the 80s and had been banging their heads against a lack of success. And so when they began to go and make real progress after NIPS 2012, it was very tempting to go and get a little ahead of ourselves and promise more than we could deliver. Yeah, and it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle, right? Because if you are coming from a base of over-promising and over-hyping, I mean, digital health and healthcare technology is obviously the, the victim of this at the moment on the, on the markets. Um, what I'm quite curious about, based on what you're saying, is really how that plays out when it comes to some of the biggest problems that healthcare is facing today. So if we look at the workforce crisis, for example, that the world over we're, we're facing when it comes to doctors and nurses, you know, rather than focusing on how do we create an extra 10 minutes for the nurse when she conducts a visit, we are talking about you know, AI automating the diagnosis of X. And I completely um, agree with you that we need to be working on both. But exactly as you're saying, the, the entry point and what we are selling to the health system and the journey that we need to go on 
should have a very tangible, low-hanging output at the moment, which is really what matters when everyone is short of nurses and doctors. Yeah, so there are, I know this, I know this uh, podcast is extremely interested in ethical issues, and we can, we can touch on that. But I think in the short term, there is a lot of low-hanging fruit uh, in liberating doctors and nurses when it turns out they're not particularly good at, um, and then freeing them to focus on human interactions and the holistic experience of a patient talking to another human being and receiving receiving health. One of the things which is part of the, the deep tech investment uh, thesis of DCVC, my firm, is the machine learning computation can reduce the operational expenditures and the capital expenditures of traditional ways of doing things and in healthcare in particular that means we can we can provide doctors and nurses with a much better idea of the patient they're about to meet um, eliminate all sorts of avenues which they they shouldn't probably be pursuing suggest better long-term preventative techniques which the patient can be be pursuing and just just allow them to go and spend more time uh, with individual doctors and uh, and nurses. What what we probably can't do uh, at the moment is hire in the UK. I think I read that there's a shortfall of a of a hundred thousand uh, doctors, another hundred thousand nurses. What what strikes me when I heard that figure is it means we're probably having our doctors and nurses focusing on the on the wrong things. And though we don't, no doubt, do need to hire a lot more people, um, perhaps they need to spend less time on stuff they they shouldn't be doing. So um, DCVC uh, has a, a healthcare company uh, in the US called Caption Health. Uh, and Caption Health is really focused uh, upon preventative health um, so, and touching the patients on a fairly ongoing basis so they're making better healthcare decisions for themselves, um, warning the warning the doctors that a particular patient needs to be checked up on. Um, uh, we provide all sorts of incentives for the patients to go and check their blood pressure, to wear an Ura ring on a daily basis, so we can see what their their heart rate is. There are lots of health props and nudges uh, which you can do by which the doctor can be and the nurse can be more effective. Um, compliance in the states, for instance, is a is a huge issue. Um, patients simply not taking their blood pressure medicine or their or their statins. And again, there are lots of things that machine learning and, and AI and computation can do to um, provide a more fertile field so doctors and nurses can be more effective. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And obviously, I'm biased given what we work on at Febris, but it, it just makes so much sense to focus on empowering the existing workforce, creating efficiency, but also empowering patients and their families and on a, an alternative workforce to to really create that more proactive and preventative healthcare approach that alleviates the backlogs that we're facing the world over at the moment. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you, thinking about, about all of this, and also the um, third big challenge that you highlighted around um, healthcare access around the globe, where do you think the adoption of innovation will happen over the next few years? Do you think 
the Western world to continue to lead the way? Or is there an opportunity, particularly in emerging markets, where we're not having to rewrite existing conventions and habits and you know human pathways that are so difficult to change to leapfrog, as we've seen with you know the use of mobile phones, for example? Where, where do you see that transformation happening in the next, let's say, decade? Well, I see where you're you're leading me on the on the analogy of uh, of mobile <laughs> phones. So I, I think Africa is could be extremely exciting. Just as Africa leapfrogged uh, landline telecommunications altogether, uh, and in banking, leapfrogged conventional banking altogether to embrace mobile banking and mobile payments with technologies like M-Pesa. I I think a similar uh, project might be possible in Africa. Africa is the fastest growing population uh, in the world. Uh, 1.5 billion people today, uh, but growing um, uh, at a compound rate. Uh, And it also has the highest disease burden uh, of any uh, population in the world uh, and has all sorts of uh, unique and emerging health challenges, particularly in in places like cancer and cardiovascular disease as Africa becomes becomes wealthier. I think Africa has the real possibility of experimenting with some of these predictive, um, precision, personalized medical techniques, which we're just beginning to work on uh, here uh, in the uh, in the rich world, which they might just altogether forswear and not touch as well. And what's really interesting about Africa is Africa might then be a a model for the uh, the rest of the world as well. So we can embrace some of their techniques. There are two companies which um, I guess I would I would uh, direct listeners to viewers to, which are not investments of mine or DCVC, but are really interesting. One is called CarePoint uh, that is beginning to go and create the equivalent of mobile banking. Uh, for uh, healthcare. And there's a really interesting company uh, out of Ghana called Yamachi. So Yamachi is based upon the observation that 97% of human genetic diversity is nondescript, exists in sub-Saharan Africa, but no one has bothered to describe African genomes uh, because Africa has been poor and there's been no mechanism of uh, biobank collection and gene sequencing. Yamachi wants to go and describe the genomes of at least 10,000 Africans in the next couple of years and eventually do do all of Africa. And why that matters is not just to go and create better therapeutics for Africans themselves, but in an inverse of the founder population effect, we will discover all sorts of new drug targets. Um, we will begin to understand the totality of human genetic diversity, which is mainly in sub-Saharan Africa. And we will find all sorts of new mechanisms of action for things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, where we lack good targets altogether. I, I've just begun to start thinking in this way, but we are very keen uh, at DCVC to begin to explore Africa as a continent that urgently needs new solutions, but whose solutions uh, might be exemplars to the rest of the world, just as mobile um, 
mobile phones and mobile banking uh, were examples to the rest of the world uh, for the pre previous two uh, technological uh, uh, sea changes. Fascinating. I think I can continue asking you questions for hours, and I'm sure our listeners would love to listen to you talk. Um, but given our time constraints, my last question will be, you, you've kind of highlighted so many opportunities, but also such tremendous challenges that we face. Where, where do you land on the scale of optimism to, to pessimism? How do you feel about our chances of solving some of these big problems over the next couple of decades or over two funds of DCVC, let's say, <laughs> as you quantified it? Well, it's my job to be an optimist, Elena. You know, I, I have to be. Otherwise, I couldn't get up in the morning, couldn't recruit founders to the cause and couldn't be helpful to them. So I, I'm, I'm at some level paid and for my own sanity have to be an optimist. But I guess I would also say I warned that sometimes it can seem like we're nowhere. And, and that's true. And it can seem like we need technology miracles to solve these problems. But I am heartened by the thought that technology miracles happen every day. Um, and I myself in my lifetime have witnessed a variety of technological miracles that solve problems that seemed absolutely insoluble. If you had told me in 2010 that the AI winter would end, and that we would be able to do real machine learning, and that we would be able to do it from these deep learning techniques that Jeff Hinton had literally been working on for 20 years without any success, I'd have said you were crazy. But it turned out that we, we made huge progress because we got new rockets, we got GPUs, we got new processors, and we got rocket fuel. We got all this data that the internet uh, was producing on a global scale. And we could begin to train deep learning neural nets uh, in a meaningful way. And that soon, suddenly we could do more than, than recognize cats. And the other big miracle in my lifetime, which I honestly didn't think would happen, is, uh, was CRISPR, was the ability to directly edit genes. Well, that seems science fictional. That seems like it was delivered by aliens. 30, 40, 50, 100 years before we were, we were ready. Um, in 2015, um, we were essentially editing uh, genes using these, even the, even the, the names sound um, obsolete, lead fingers, talons. They were incredibly difficult to do, uh, wildly expensive, and they took, they took forever. Uh, and now, with a $10,000 machine and an undergraduate degree uh, in biology, anyone can directly edit can directly edit genes and produce new therapeutics, um, new microbes to go and produce the synthetic, uh, the microbial fertilizers uh, I was talking about. So there are there are miracles every day, and I I want to leave leave your audience with the message that if you are working on a technological miracle, um, you have a um, a like-minded person in me and my firm. We have a lot of money and we'd love to give it to you.
that's a wonderful note to finish on. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation and really appreciate your insights and time. Thanks, Jason. Me too. Thank you, Elena. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Ethical Data. If you want to learn more about how Alina and Febris are changing healthcare delivery with AI, you can head over to febris.com and check out the show notes if you want to follow Alina and Febris to hear about the latest in AI and healthcare.